special Remembrance Day episode of Writers' Festival Radio, Fighting for Peace. As always, we are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. I want to begin by acknowledging the invaluable support of the City of Ottawa, the Government of Ontario, the Government of Canada, the Ontario Arts Council, and the Canada Council for the Arts for doing so much to sustain Canadian culture and the literary arts through this difficult time. Please take a moment to rate and review Writers' Festival Radio and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoy this podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. We can't do it without you. In this episode, we'll hear from two acclaimed historians, Tim Cook and Scott Anderson. Up first, it's Ottawa's Tim Cook. He joins us for a conversation with Mark Sutcliffe about his latest bestseller, The Fight for History. In it, he examines how Canadians framed and reframed the war experience over time. Here's their conversation on how Canada has talked about the war in the past, how we tried to bury it, and how it was restored. Well, Tim, it is a great pleasure to speak with you again. Congratulations on the book, The Fight for History, 75 Years of Forgetting, Remembering, and Remaking Canada's Second World War. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Mark. It's uh, great to be back with the festival. It's uh, I've spoken many times here, but not like this, but uh, it really uh, uh, is special to have another book out and uh, and to speak to uh, people in Ottawa. So thanks very much. So let's talk about truth and fact and history, uh, because this is a really relevant topic right now in so many ways. And I want to explore that a little bit. And the Second World War, I think, offers a very compelling example that you detail in the book of, of how, how truth is, is uh, considered, how, how stories are told. So let's start with a broad question. How subjective is the writing of history and, and how does it take shape after an event like the Second World War comes to an end? Well, I, th- I think we have a we know that history is, is subjective. The stories that we choose to tell uh, are selected from the multitude of, of events that have happened. Um, it takes individuals, usually historians, but journalists and, and other cultural producers to select those stories, to engage in the research and eventually to write it up. And it is no easy thing to, to write a book. Um, In this book, in particular, uh, I was interested in, I guess, as you've alluded to there, the history of the Second World War and the way um, it has um, been situated in our collective memory. And um, even though that may sound a little academic, I don't think it is. I always try to write my books in a narrative uh, narrative form and, and let eyewitnesses to history tell those stories. But all all history books have a question. And, and the question that really, um, that I struggled with here was, why hadn't we done a better job in telling our story of the Second World War? And um, that isn't to say that nobody in Canada knows about the Second World War, of course we do. Um, and yet it's not a cultural touchstone in our society, or at least it wasn't for a long time. And of course, I work at the War Museum. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply involved in material culture and the stories we tell. 
And I, and I was aware of the impact of the Great War. Um, think of Vimy and people talking about it as the birth of the nation. I've written a book about that. Think of Remembrance Day and John McCrae and the Poppy, all emerging from that war. Uh, thousands of memorials, uh, our national memorial, uh, Vimy and Beaumont Himmel overseas. And yet I was struck, why wasn't there the same attention to Canada's Second World War? So that was really the driving question uh, behind the book. And what did you find? Because uh, it's interesting, you you point out a lot of really interesting things about how the the First World War, although, as you say, it had all those sort of formative moments for Canada, uh, it ended in kind of an, amb uh, in, an ambiguous way that in fact led to the Second World War. The Second World War was much more decisive. It had a much more clear enemy and a binary outcome uh, that, that I think made for in a lot of ways, and not to not to oversimplify it, but made for a, a greater story in a way. Canada played such a, a role in, in the Netherlands and uh, in other parts of the war in Europe. So why didn't that story take hold the way it did for the First World War? Yeah, if we just think about Canada in the Second World War, 1.1 million Canadians served in uniform, and that's from a country of about 11 million. So one in 10 including 50,000 women who, who served in uniform. About 3 million Canadians were involved in wartime production in factories and on farms. Uh, there was the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan across the country, which trained 131,000 airmen. We had fighting forces fighting around the world in, in the Far East and the Pacific, of course, the Hong Kong garrison. There was the Dieppe raid, the invasion of Sicily in the summer of 1943, the fight through the Italian mainland, uh, D-Day, of course, Canada landing at Juneau Beach with the British and the Americans fighting through Normandy, perhaps the most important campaign, little known to Canadians, the Scheldt campaign in October and November of 1944 to open up Antwerp. Um, fighting through the Rhineland. I haven't even mentioned the Battle of the Atlantic, the air war, just an incredible contribution that really forever changed us. Um, Canada emerged from the war uh, bruised, bloodied, battered with 45,000 killed and 55,000 wounded. And yet we were, we were set on a new trajectory moving forward. We were a wealthier nation. We were tied to the United States. We saw the emergence of, uh, of, of our cities and the building of suburban areas. Um, the list goes on, a million veterans who came back and helped to build up the country. And I thought, isn't it strange that we didn't tell that story very effectively? And, I, and, and so in the book, I, I began to look at that and I, I examined the return of those veterans, the million veterans who returned back to the society from which they came. Uh, there were jobs for them. There, uh, they, were, they were welcomed back. There was the Veterans Charter that sent 50,000 to university. Um, there were loans to start businesses. Really, this is, the, this is Canada being propelled forward into the prosperous second half of the 20th century that you and I and, and many other Canadians have benefited from. And yet we were going forward, not looking backwards. And I think that's really important. And within a couple of years, we simply stopped talking about the Second World War. We, we didn't write the books. We didn't create the plays. There weren't the same novels. Um, uh, veterans themselves were getting on with their lives. We didn't build the same memorials. And, and in the end, we allowed our story and our history to wither away for the better part of about 50 years. And, and then something changed. 
Yeah, and we can talk about what changed in a moment, but you mentioned uh, the the books weren't written, the plays and the movies and the and the stories and the monuments. Um, there, there is a role for in remembrance for artists, musicians, poets, writers, um, and and even for uh, in the case of a, a war memorial uh, for sculptors and 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 visual artists. So, um, tell me a little bit more about that, and perhaps why that wasn't our focus at that time. Is it because? We were so forward-looking at the time that we didn't want to look back. The 50s and 60s, which followed the war, were a time of, of all kinds of progress uh, and change. Was, was our focus just on something else? I think it was. We were building up the country. And if we think of the first half of the 20th century, think of the South African War, the Great War, then the Depression and the Second World War. It's a time of war and depression and really difficult years. The second half of the 20th century is very different, and, and we are remade as a country in no small part because of what we did during the Second World War. And one would think then that those would be things that we would celebrate, that we would focus on, that we would um, that those would be the stories that we we told. And, and in fact, we didn't. And and one of the things I look at in the book, I look at some of those cultural producers that you've talked about, but maybe I'll just focus on on one aspect here and of the memorials. Because, of course, when we think of the Great War, we think of those thousands of more memorials across the country that were built to the fallen. Every city, every town, every village had memorials. There were provincial memorials. There were stained glass windows in churches. There were commemorative texts. Um, uh, there was the National Memorial in downtown Ottawa and Vimy overseas. And I've always wondered, why didn't we do that for the Second World War? Now. I've uncovered that story here. And when the Second World War veterans came back, as they were being reintegrated into Canada, as they began to build up the country through the what is now the Royal Canadian Legion and other veterans organizations, they said, we accept Remembrance Day. Uh, that has been established. It's too cold. I mean, there's a great debate about moving it to the 6th of June or the 8th of May or the 15th of August. Those dates should resonate. Um, but of course, which date would you pick? And they said, okay, November 11th is established. We accept the poppy. We ex accept two minutes of silence. But what they wanted, what they wanted was a new national memorial in downtown Ottawa. Um, the memorial that, that Mark, you and I have been to and stood at so many times, it had only been unveiled in 1939. And the, the government of the day, Mackenzie King's government that had seen Canada through the war was shocked. I mean, what is wrong with the monument, they said. And the Second World War veterans uh, came together and said, we accept all those other elements, but this monument is just simply too strongly linked to the Great War. There are 22 figures passing through the arch. They're all in intricate detail, uh, wearing uh, Great War uniforms and, and carrying those weapons. And they said, we need a new memorial. And there was quite a fierce debate in Canada about if a new national memorial would be built in 1945. Ultimately, the King government decided against it. And instead, they said that Ottawa itself would become a national memorial. Um, the beautification plan of Ottawa. Uh, now, I've lived here 46, 47 of my 48 years, and I knew that story, but I knew that that, that beautification plan was a part of the war, but not that it was to have been our national memorial. And of course, it's not acknowledged that, that today, or it's not not in anybody's uh, social memory at all. Right, the two uh, things aren't linked anymore, right? No, they're not. No. 
And so it's, it's a really interesting question of what did Canadians build after the war? They did build a form of memorials. They built utilitarian memorials. They built hockey arenas and libraries and gardens. And these were places where it was thought that for, for those soldiers who died, these would be living memorials for people to come together. And it was not a bad idea. There are, there are still some uh, memorial arenas in, in cities across this country, but there's not, they're not sacred places. And, and that's what the veterans argued. They said, please build these gardens and libraries and, and hockey arenas and tennis courts and swimming pools. But nobody on November 11th is going to a swimming pool to, to bear witness to the fallen. And, and that failure to build a national memorial, I use as just one of many examples of, of the way that the Great War and the ways that we tried to make meaning of that war really overshadowed the Second World War. When you add in the failure to uh, produce the same cultural products, uh, novels and plays and films, and, and to go beyond that, um, I talk about veterans themselves and the challenges they faced in telling their stories. And was there also an issue of the self-image that Canada had as we progressed through the 60s, 70s, and 80s? Because uh, we started to refer to ourselves as a nation of peacekeepers, and, and we started to talk about the peacekeeping missions. And there was a point, I think, I think we've, we've uh, changed course from that now, but there was a point when I feel like we almost wanted to be understood to be neutral in on the world stage rather than an active participant in conflict. Was that an element uh, of this story too? I, it is without a doubt. And I talk about that in the book. I mean, very, very strangely, another Ottawa story, of course, Igor Gazenko, uh, the cipher clerk in, in the Soviet embassy who defects uh, only a month in fact, three weeks after the end of the war against Japan and revealing that the Soviets have an espionage and spy ring uh, and, and is one of those factors that leads into the Cold War. And so the Second World War ends with Europe in ruins, with the world going through an agonizing, decolonizing event. Um, uh, just think of the chaos uh, in those first five to ten years after the Second World War. Um, and then we moved right into the Cold War and the Korean War. And and there are debates, um, which I talk about in the book, where people are saying, well, you know, it's very difficult to, for us to, uh, uh, to commemorate and, and talk about this other war when we've moved right into a new war. Uh, and then I think you're exactly right in the 60s and 70s, as Canada is again remaking itself and, and um, uh, questions of, of identity and national identity are really emerging there in English and French Canada and, and, and our position on the world stage. And we take great pride in uh, Pearson's Nobel Prize and the idea of the peacekeeper, which uh, which I'm very proud of as a Canadian. And yet, of course, it takes soldiers to be peacekeepers. And and Canada's peacekeeping history was was in a particular period. So all of those factors, and, and in fact, others I talk about in the book, again help to diminish um, the Second World War contributions and and leaving it behind. And maybe that comes back to your initial question of. What history do we tell? What stories get passed on? What is it that we celebrate as, as a people? And um, it's not like other countries didn't talk about World War II. It's extremely prominent, as, as you know, in, in American history, uh, in British history, in German history, in world history, in the Holocaust. But yet it is strange that Canada not only diminished our 
incredible contributions. But by the 1980s and 1990s, when we talked about the war, we tended to focus on Dieppe, a, a, a clear-cut defeat one day in the war. Most Canadians had no idea that we had spent six years in the bow of the Atlantic, which kept Britain in the war, or 100,000 soldiers in Italy, or 50,000 women serving you know, in the armed forces, or, or all those other stories. We focused on defeat and often disgrace, the, the reprehensible a forced relocation of Japanese Canadians during the war had largely been forgotten, but then emerged in the late 70s and in the 1980s. And Mark, I'm sure you'll remember this, um, the redress campaign. It was the right thing to do, but again, it focused on defeat and disgrace. And so by the 1990s, um, Canadians, for the most part, had very little idea of what we had done during the Second World War. And if they did know, we focused on on really these dark elements. So what changed? What happened in the 1990s, uh, roughly 50 years after the Second World War? Yeah, well, it's the end of end of the, the Second World War, the 50th anniversary in 1994 and 1995. And up to that point, I mean, I, I had, I've always talked to veterans my whole life and they said, Tim, that was a key event. We were so surprised. Um, thousands of Canadians went back uh, to France in, in 1994, that was the 50th anniversary of D-Day and the Normandy landings. Many had been there 10 years earlier in 1984, and I talk about that in the book, where Canada was completely overshadowed. Uh, Ronald Reagan, the American president, uh, you know, stole the limelight is the wrong word, but he was so prominent there. And, and Canada's prime minister of the day, Pierre Trudeau, who was soon to leave office, uh, did, had very little impact. And veterans, again, felt that they had been ignored and that their history had been cast aside. And Trudeau used most of his time to talk about peace and peacekeeping at that event. So when they went back in 1994, they really didn't expect much. And yet these aged warriors were returned to, to huge crowds. Uh, first the French in 1994, and then the next year, the Dutch. And of course, the Dutch had never forgotten the Canadians who helped to liberate their country, who helped to save the country as thousands were starving to death after five years of, of, of Nazi occupation. Um, and they were welcome back and our news networks finally paid attention. I've talked to Peter Mansbridge about this, of multiple day coverage uh, with CBC and CTV in English and French and Canadians woke up. They woke up from the apathy. They woke up and realized that we had at that point, still hundreds of thousands of veterans in Canada who we had paid very little attention to. And, and, and the subtitle of the book, the, the forgetting and, and the remembering and the remaking, that's the part of the remembering. And then I would say over the last 25 years, a, a remaking and a re-engagement with the Second World War. Is there a lesson in all of this, Tim, that, uh, that we need to be better as Canadians at telling our own stories, particularly these kinds of stories? Yeah, it's a good question. I, when I set off to, to write it, I, I didn't think it was going to be a call to action or I was looking for those lessons. I was more interested in what had happened, but I, I did realize that there, there's a key theme that seems to emerge here. And I think it is that if, if we don't tell our story, if Canadians don't tell their story, no one else will. Don't expect the Americans to tell our story or the British or the French or the Germans, right? It's just, this is our history and it's up to us to do it. And I, 
when I would when I was teaching at Carleton years ago, uh, and I would teach about Canadian military history, almost everyone in the classroom had seen Saving Private Ryan or Band of Brothers or one of those really wonderful films, poignant and powerful and gut wrenching, and they'd say to me, well, what, "What's you know, Professor Cook? What's the Canadian equivalent?" And of course, there isn't one. Um, and, and the same uh, for a long time with the memorials. And, and, and since 1995, more history books and I think a better engagement in our classrooms, but for many years as well, we didn't go, do a good job in teaching this history. And so we shouldn't be surprised if Canadians of, of different generations, generations that move beyond the war, don't know a lot about our history. It's a self-inflicted wound. And I think if there's a lesson, I, I, I think there is, it is that one. Um, I'm a military historian and I've devoted most of my adult life to this. I, I don't think that only Canadians need to know about military history. We are a, a wonderful and complex country in many ways. But that same message is true. If we don't talk about our own history, others won't do it for us. And so I think um, that is a theme that emerged through the book. And, you know, as you're writing books, there's a process of uncovering and the research. It's so exciting. And you're finding all these great connections. And then you have to sit and write it. And it's tough. It's tough slogging as you're as you're pounding it out. And then you go back and, and, and you, you know, as you see what you've got, you begin to see themes emerging and they're, you know, they're written in there, but they need to be drawn out. And so that was a process for me um, in that second, third, 14th, 27th edit, where these ideas begin to emerge out in a stronger way. And, and that's part of the writing process where, you know, there's, there's no good writing without rewriting. Right. Can you talk more about your process, actually, about how you uh, how you set out on a mission and, and you know, you're taking, uh, in this case, five or six years of history, uh, so many stories uh, within the Second World War could be a book themselves. Yeah. Um, and this is your third book about the Second World War. So how do you how do you make decisions? How do you choose what to include and what not to include? How do you go through the process from start to finish? Yeah, yeah well, I it's the third volume, as you say, and, and the first two volumes were initially going to be one volume. I had written a two-volume history uh, of the Great War at the Sharp End and Shock Troops, and they were back-to-back in 2007, 2008. Um, and they really propelled me forward. They won a number of national awards and, and helped, I think, to move me from a, a historian to a writer. But I said, never again. I'm not ever going to write two 600-page books back-to-back again. But as I was writing The the Necessary War in 2014, which was, I thought, a one-volume history, there was just so many incredible stories, as you mentioned, and, and as we've talked about Canada's contribution. And, and my research takes me to archives across the country. I'm lucky to work at the War Museum. We have an incredible collection there. I've been able to speak to veterans for over 25 years, and uh, I love to sit down and to, to talk to veterans, to hear their stories. Often um, they say, well, you know, Tim, I, I didn't win the military cross, or uh, I, I wasn't on the, I wasn't at Juneau Beach. And I say, well, that's fine. I mean, there was a million, a million, 1.1 million Canadians who served. Everyone has a story. What was yours? Where were you? You were in Newfoundland. Fascinating. What were you doing there? 
What kind of magazines did you read? What was your favorite cigarette? What did you think of the war effort? Did you know anything? This is the stuff of history. And, and Mark, I know as a, a longtime journalist, I mean, these are, the, these are the stories that you try to draw out as well. Um, I spent a lot of time at the National Archives going through the official records to understand the, the larger impact of the war and how battles are fought and aspects of training and doctrine and weapon systems and, and how battles are, are fought and how soldiers kill and are, be, and are killed, but always with the sense of the eyewitnesses to history. And, um, and, and this third book, I think, could rightly be said, is really a book about veterans uh, in no small degree. Um, my conversations with veterans over the years, hearing their stories, the silences, we have a, a far greater sense today of, of things like post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, uh, you know, those who come back from war, who, who are imprinted with war, with carrying the weight of war. Um, many veterans have talked to me and said, I, I, I'm almost certain I had what we now call PTSD. We didn't call it anything back then. You were left to fend for yourself. You talked to your wife, you drank too much or whatever, whatever it took to get through it. And that too is a part of this, those silences. Um, and so um, that is, is another theme that when I was uh, touring the country and talking to Canadians about my two volumes, The Necessary War and Fight to the Finish, people said that to me, uh, two things. One, I didn't know this history, and thank you. I mean, I've always read World War II, they said, but I read about Montgomery, and I read about, uh, I read about the Germans on the Eastern Front, and I read about the Pacific Campaign, but boy, I mean, what about Canada's contribution? And secondly, they said to me, thank you, because my father served, or my grandmother served, or my grandfather served, but we never had a chance to talk, and I never, had, I never knew the questions to ask him, and he couldn't tell me. Um, and, and I, people wrote me a lot of letters after those books. And, and to, to come back to your question of what drove me to this book, it was to find out why we talked about the Second World War the way we did, but also those silences and perhaps to, to create uh, a book that might allow other Canadians to talk about and to reflect upon. And, and as we come up to Remembrance Day, perhaps to bear witness to that service and sacrifice. Yeah, that silence is such an important element. I've talked to so many children of World War II veterans who never spoke to their parents about what they experienced. It just wasn't something that was done then. So uh, it's so important to get these stories out as you do. Uh, you have a personal connection to World War II. Uh, you had a grandfather who flew in Bomber Command. Can you share that personal story? Yeah, uh, Gordon Cook was was my grandfather. He's passed away. Um, I was born in 1971. He passed away in 1974. But but through my dad, Terry Cook, who sadly has passed away now, we used to talk about him. And um, you know, I grew up in a house of history. My my father Terry, my mother Sharon was a professor of history and education at Ottawa U. We, we were surrounded by books, and so history mattered. I went away to Trent University and I, of course, I went trying to do anything but uh, history. I found I couldn't do much else besides history and maybe rugby. Uh, and and it, it really captured my imagination. And, and when my parents took me to the battlefields on the Western Front, that made it real, so tangible to, to walk those silent cities, to see the young boys there and, and those in their 20s and older who, who never came home. 
And of course, like millions of Canadians, I began to explore my own history and, and through Gordon Cook. And we have his, we have artifacts related to him and we have his flight uh, log books and his personnel file. We, we acquired that from Library Archives Canada as, as any Canadian can with uh, someone who served in the Great War or in the Second World War. And, and I think in many ways, history is something that those who are interested uh, they find a connection somehow. And, and it wasn't just my grandfather was my connection, but having that personal connection mattered to me. Understand his experience mattered to me. And of course, he was, he was one of those million veterans who came back to Canada. He didn't take part in the veterans charter. He didn't go to university, but he got a job. Um, uh, um, and he, he built a family. And occasionally he would wear his medals, my dad would say, and, and he went out on Remembrance Day and he liked to make models and he would occasionally like to, to watch movies about World War II, but he never read much. Uh, and I think he was like many veterans who came back, who went on, who, began, who built up the country, and yet they were always going to be veterans. Um, and, and that is something I struggle with. Uh, I imagine, Mark, every time you open the paper today, we see those obituaries. We see uh, the Second World War veterans who are, who are dying at age 95, 96, 100. Of the 1.1 million, and as we said, 45,000 were killed during the war, um, we're down to fewer than 30,000. And over the next five or 10 years, we will lose almost all of them. And I wonder where will we be as, 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 as a country when we have lost all of our veterans, our eyewitnesses to history, uh, something will have changed in us. And I think this book is uh, grapples with some of those ideas about passing these stories on to different generations and, and the ways that we need to tell our stories. And I, I hope, I hope that it's a, a modest offering for people, uh, not just those who have a, a genealogical link, but but for all Canadians. Well, it's more than that. Uh, obviously, uh, it's a great piece of work and, and so compelling as all of your work is. Uh, but what do you think about the, the passage of time and the distance, the growing distance from the Second World War and what that will mean in terms of our collective memory of it? Um, this, of course, it would have been the 75th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. We, I mean, it is the, the 75th anniversary of the end of the Second World War, 2020. I say it would have been because like so many things in 2020, the kinds of um, events and commemorations that would have occurred have not happened yeah. uh, because of the coronavirus pandemic. So I know you you have a call to action in the book. What What do you think we should be doing about about this moment and about our our memory as more time passes yeah you know this is the 75th as you said and and COVID has taken so much away from us um and really the muting of those two anniversaries on the 8th of may and the 15th of august are not the most important things that have happened to us over the last year or so and yet um there was a diminishment these this would have been a chance maybe the last major chance for us to, to stand up and to, um, for some, thank our veterans, for others to reflect upon uh, what they did and how they helped to build up our country, perhaps to bear witness to um, those who never came home. Um, this would have been the year. And um, I hope we don't lose sight of that. And I guess we'll, we will have an opportunity on Remembrance Day. We won't be able to come together like we have in the past. 
Um, and yet Remembrance Day to me has always been many things, but one of them is that we, that idea of coming together in a group um, to bear witness, as I've said, but to, to reflect upon a day that is so deeply grounded in our shared history, um, we can still do that. We can do that in our own homes and residences. We can still reflect uh, on, on that service and sacrifice. Um, and I, I will certainly be doing that. And I, I never want to tell people what they should be doing on Remembrance Day, but I, I know there are so many Canadians across this country where, uh, where Remembrance Day is really a, a prominent day in the lives of Canadians. And the book looks at that, how, how in the 1960s and 70s, Remembrance Day was almost canceled. Um, the Globe and Mail reported in, in 1968 that it was a day of public indifference. In the 70s and 80s, uh, very few people came out to their local community cenotaphs. But again, as we, we said, those that 50th anniversary, we began to see a, a change there, a change in Canadians uh, paying more attention, um, uh, coming out and, and paying their respects, uh, both for, for those who served and never came home and those who can continue to serve, and I think uh, veterans as well from uh, other conflicts. And I think this will be important this November 11th. Uh, and then going forward, uh, I think um, that we simply must tell our stories better. We, we have to teach um, the next generation. We have to remind them of the importance of our shared history. And I'm not, Eric, I don't want it to come across that I'm preaching uh, that it's only heroic history, that we must stand by the flag. No. I, Anybody who knows my books knows I write about the grim realities of war, war and combat, terrible things. But if ever there was a war that had to be won, it was the Second World War, as I have called it, the necessary war against Hitler and the Nazis and other fascists. And, and we should remember that and we should, we should tell our story. Well, Tim, you play such an important role in keeping these stories alive through all of the great work that you do in your writing, in the stories uh, that you share through interviews like this, in the speeches you give, in the work you do at the War Museum. So keep keep going with this because it is so important that we we do preserve our history and we do shape our history and that Canadians never forget the importance of the Second World War, as you call it, the necessary war. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Mark. That was author, broadcaster, and entrepreneur Mark Sutcliffe in conversation with award-winning author and historian Tim Cook about his latest, Fight for History, 75 Years of Forgetting, Remembering, and Remaking Canada's Second World War. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season. It's all available online at writersfestival.org. And all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Please consider making a donation to support our virtual programming, as it may be a long while before we are able to gather again in person. Up next, we have CBC's Lawrence Wall in conversation with Scott Anderson, the best-selling author of Lawrence in Arabia, who makes his virtual debut on our stage with a gripping history of the early years of the Cold War, the CIA's covert battles against communism, and the tragic consequences which still affect the world today. The Quiet Americans chronicles the exploits of four spies, and it is also the story of how the United States, at the very pinnacle of its power, managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Here's their conversation. 
Hello, I'm Lawrence Wall from CBC Radio 1 in Ottawa. Welcome to this virtual event by the Ottawa Writers' Festival featuring Scott Anderson, the author of The Quiet Americans. The Second World War ended more than 75 years ago in August of 1945, but despite that hard-fought peace, another war was already underway. The Cold War, which pitted the West, especially the U.S., against the Soviet Union. The Second World War had killed millions of people in six years of fighting. By contrast, the Cold War would kill far fewer, but lasted more than 45 years until the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s. In some respect, that war has never truly ended and is even being fought today, this time online. 1945 also marked the early days of U.S. intelligence and what would become the massive American spy organization, the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. That agency worked to counter Soviet influence wherever it appeared, sometimes by sending agents into communist countries, other times to topple even democratically elected governments that seemed too pro-communist. This book focuses on four men who were recruited and spent many years with the agency overseeing numerous operations, a few successful, but many not, and some of those carrying deadly and tragic consequences. I'm delighted that we have with us today the author of The Quiet Americans, Four CIA Spies at the Dawn of the Cold War, A Tragedy in Three Acts. Scott Anderson grew up in East Asia, where his father was an agricultural advisor for the U.S. government. He is a veteran war correspondent, having covered conflicts on four continents. He's also a novelist and a nonfiction writer. Scott's most recent nonfiction work was the acclaimed Lawrence in Arabia. Scott has been a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine for 15 years. His work has also appeared in a number of publications, including Vanity Fair, Esquire, and Harper's. Scott Anderson, welcome to this virtual event at the Ottawa Writers' Festival. I've asked you to start off by reading a section from the book. Tell us what you've selected. Uh, thanks so much, Lawrence. Um, as, as you mentioned, there are four uh, main characters in the, in the book. Um, and the section I'm going to read is kind of the introduction to one of those four, um, a man named uh, Michael Burke. Um, uh, and, and, and it's all, you get a sense of it in this, but he had an extremely colorful life. Many people have exciting and varied lives. And then there was Edmund Michael Burke, star athlete, black ops commando, Hollywood screenwriter, ladies man, spy. Some of the other highlights of his diverse resume, maritime insurance investigator, baseball team president, media executive, circus manager. On a personal level, friends with Ava Gardner, Muhammad Ali, and Eleanor Roosevelt. Drinking buddy of Ernest Hemingway, Gary Cooper, and Mickey Mantle. During one particularly hectic stretch in his spying days, his social circle included a lively group of aspiring filmmakers and an even livelier group of aspiring paramilitary assassins. And such were the demands of his profession that he often had to entertain both in the same day. Charismatic, suave, and possessed of black Irish good looks, in essence, Michael Burke was James Bond before James Bond existed. Not that everyone knew him by that name, during the same period, he was known to many as Randolph R. Northwood, and he, was a and he was a movie producer in Italy, or a political advisor in Germany, or a businessman dabbling in the import-export trade in Greece. Amid the ever-changing subterfuges, however, there were certain constants. One was Burke's taste for the good life. 
Another was his disdain for the shoulder holster. In his opinion, that accessory was best suited for beefy men wearing shapeless suits. Whereas to conceal a gun on his own slender and well-tailored frame, he said, I found the pocket of a trench coat or the barrel tucked into the waistband of my trousers suited me better. In looking back at the fantastically improbable turns of his life, at the journey that would take him from a rural Connecticut childhood to the darkest corners of the Cold War espionage world, and then on to the most rarefied reaches of New York high society, Burke would modestly attribute most of it to dumb luck, to simply being in the right place at the right time. In fact, he would title his autobiography, Outrageous Good Fortune. There was clearly more to it than that though, because no one enjoys good luck so consistently as did Michael Burke, Bass and Fortune quite so outrageous. A more textured explanation emerges in the recollections of those who actually knew him. With remarkable uniformity, former friends and associates choose the same first adjective when describing him, charming. Indeed, to one former CIA colleague, Michael Burke was simply, quote, the most charming man I have ever met. If that sounds a tad hyperbolic, consider the assessment of one of his debriefing officers in World War II. Tasked to conduct spot interviews with scores, sometimes hundreds of soldiers in rapid succession, it's hard to imagine a more world-weary bunch than military debriefing officers. But the one assigned to Burke in December 1944 was sufficiently impressed to jot down a word rarely seen on a debrief form, delightful. On the most basic level, it seems that to meet Michael Burke was to like him, and not just to like him, but to like him so well as to want to help him along in life. But behind his endearing demeanor, there dwelt something a bit harder, a kind of hunger, a need to excel and impress. That hunger first displayed itself on the sports field, but it then carried to the battlefield, to situations where Burke not only risked his own life, but those of others. In later years, it manifested in a unique talent for social climbing. Whenever my father walked into a room, recalled his eldest child, Patricia Burke, he would immediately size up who was the most important or most famous person there. Before long, he'd be talking with him, and by the end of the night, they'd be friends. He collected people, and the more famous or powerful, the better. It wasn't that he was a glad-hander exactly, but he just always wanted to be around people who were doing things, big things. She pondered for a moment. I think from very early on, my father was looking for a bigger life than he'd been handed to go beyond anyone's expectations of him. Great. So that's, there's James Bond before James Bond existed. There were three other men in this quartet that you described in the American tragedy. Who were the other three quiet Americans? Um, I'll, I'll start with the, the, I think, probably the most remarkable character. In, in, he's still alive. Uh, he's 98 years old, and, and uh, I held a series of, of interviews with him. A man named Peter Sichel. Peter Sichel was a, a, a German Jew. His family escaped the, the Nazis in the mid-1930s. He came to the United States uh, as a teenager. And because he was a fluent German speaker, he was put into the American uh, Wartime Intelligence Agency, the Office of Strategic Services. Uh, during the war, he, he was a currency trader for the OSS, basically working the black market to collect money for commando operations behind, uh, behind enemy lines. Uh, at the end of the war, he was made the first, essentially, it was a precursor to the CIA. It was, or, um, it was America's 
peacetime intelligence agency. Uh, he was made the station chief and put in charge of the of the bureau in in Berlin, already becoming the ground zero of of uh, of the coming Cold War. Um, and just as indication of just how really clueless the Americans were of this coming conflict. Uh, in Berlin in late 1945, there were certainly hundreds, if not thousands, of Soviet intelligence agencies, agents already operating. Uh, Peter Sichel's unit consisted of nine men. He was the head of it, and he just turned 23. <laughs> so it, it really, uh, the Americans really kind of caught unawares, not to take anything away from Peter's intelligence. Uh, the, the other character is, is a man named Frank Wisner, uh, Wisner was also in the OSS during World War II. He had the unique experience of watching the Soviet Red Army march in, first in a march into Romania uh, in, in the summer of 1944, so full year before the war was over. Watched how they, they, they completely took over the, the country in, in a matter of weeks. And he then witnessed the aftermath uh, of what was happening in eastern Germany, the Soviet zone of, of Germany in the immediate aftermath of the war. This, that experience made him uh, a, a fervent anti-communist. He, um, he was, by training, he was a, a corporate lawyer. He, he went back to his law firm after the war for a couple of years. And then he was made uh, the, the head of the first clandestine operation unit of the CIA in 1948. So Wisner was kind of the, the grand orchestrator. He, he actually called his organization the Mighty Wolitzer. And he was the whiz. He was the guy sitting behind the desk running these operations uh, around the world for the next uh, 10, 10, 11 years. Everything from, from uh, kind of soft power initiatives like uh, putting on Broadway plays in Germany and, and running an overseas library program to black ops of, of dropping commandos behind uh, the Iron Curtain and assassinations uh, and, and, of course, uh, revolutions. So it's the whole gamut. Um, and then the, the fourth character is Edward Lansdale. Ed Lansdale uh, was an ad executive in, in, uh, in San Francisco before the war. Uh, uh, he had what used to be called a bad war in that he, he because of his age and he had a thyroid condition, uh, he, was, he was never sent overseas. So, so he, was, he was stuck behind the desk uh, throughout the war. Shortly after he was sent to the Philippines, which was uh, an American, essentially a colony, um, and already experiencing a, a, an anti-colonial fervor that translated into a communist insurgency. And Lansdale had this very uh, simple idea that was quite revolutionary for the time, which was that if you, want to, if you want to win people away from communism, you need to give them a government that they, they believe in and that they trust in and that, that works for their benefit. Um, at the time, the Philippines uh, government was a very corrupt oligarchy. Um, uh, all the wealth was in the hands of a few people. And, and Lansdale, along with a, a man he chose, Raymond Saisai, uh, who he's a, a Filipino senator, who he engineered to become Minister of Defense and then ultimately president, um, really kind of popularized, led a popular government, defeated the communist insurgency, um, uh, almost one of the only communist insurgencies to be, to be defeated um, in Asia. Um, he became known as the miracle worker of Asia. So when he came back uh, to the CIA headquarters in, in 1954, he met with the CIA director who said, um, you know, we're having, a, we're having a problem in another place uh, in Asia, being 
Vietnam. He said, we want you to go to Vietnam and do the same thing there that you did in the Philippines. Uh, no, problem. <laughs> no problem. So he, uh, so he headed off to the Vietnam and it, it, kind of mirroring uh, uh, Sichel in, in Berlin. The first American military mission to, to South Vietnam in 1954, which Lansdale headed, consisted of himself and 12 other men. And that was it for, for the first two years. And really very nearly succeeded in, in diffusing the communist insurgency and, and kind of, in fact, replicating what, had, what he had achieved in the Philippines. Uh, and then it, then it all kind of fell apart. So a fascinating cast of characters here, but I want to pick up on one thing that you said, uh, that the Americans had a nine-man unit in Berlin versus the thousands of Soviet agents who were there at the time. It really did seem like a mismatch. So can we really fault the Americans for going up against a totalitarian state where this kind of round-the-clock surveillance was more suited for that style, uh, and as well a, a built-in established machine to do that kind of surveillance and intelligence gathering versus the Americans who were, I think what, one description, the, the British described them as having a lot of money, but a little bit clueless. <laughs> right, right. So is it any wonder that it was a mismatch that way? No, I, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's not a surprise. I, I think that, to my mind, that there was a great what-if moment of history of uh, with Roosevelt dying in April of 1945, uh, you know, Roosevelt had this idea that what we were fighting for and what the Americans were fighting for in World War II was uh, an end of the imperial age, that, you know, the British and the, and the French empires were going to be dismantled, the, these empires that were causing such disenchantment in the, in the developing world, uh, and that America was going to be this, become this beacon of democracy throughout the developing world. Both of those things very quickly disappeared. Um, I think also Roosevelt had an existing relationship with Stalin. And again, it's one of the great what ifs of history is, you know, what would have happened if, if Roosevelt had just lived a, a year longer? Would he have come to some sort of accommodation with Stalin where it, it would have not, not meant the, the, you know, the, the Soviet takeover all of Eastern Europe? With Truman coming in, I, I mean, the one thing I do fault Truman for was I, I, there was this critical period of from 1945 to say 1947 into 48, where I think the Americans were incredibly slow in realizing the, the danger that, that was coming. America was retreating into one of its periodic isolationist modes. Um, the, the American military was, as soon as the war was over, was demobilizing at the rate of 20,000 soldiers a day. Um, so they basically surrendered the playing field to the Soviets. So I, I think they were very slow to, to, to see the, the new threat that was, that was building. And of course it, it meant people like Peter Sichel and, and his small team in Berlin were completely outmatched. Do you think that in light of a leader like Joseph Stalin, that the Cold War was inevitable, that given Stalin's clear intention to set up the, the satellite states around the Soviet Union, that it couldn't have been anything other than that. So even, I want to challenge you here, even had FDR lived another year or so, do we not think that it's quite likely that Stalin would still have exercised the kind of control that he did? It's funny, I, when I think of Stalin and kind of that 1945 period, I, <laughs> it, 
I, I hope this doesn't seem belittling, but I, I always think of this movie Fargo that was done by the Coen brothers about 15 years ago. Yeah. And it, it was, it's it movie, it, it was supposed to be, there, there's this garden variety crime going on and no one was supposed to get hurt. But what happens when you, when you throw a sociopath in the middle of that? <laughs> and I often think of, of the, the, the world in the immediate post post-war period is that all the best plans of Churchill and of, of FDR, what happens when you have a paranoid sociopath like Stalin thrown into the mix? The, the one thing I, that Stalin did understand, though, was power. And I think that as Churchill was advocating Roosevelt all through the war, certainly in the 1944-45, was our, this is phase one of the world confrontation. Phase two is going to be with the Soviets, and we have to be ready. Um, I think that with, uh, if, if Roosevelt had been there, or even if Truman had, had been a bit quicker to the plate, that th- they could have pushed Stalin back in places. They, 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 certainly places like Czechoslovakia and Hungary, they might have been, you know, quote, saved, probably Poland not, probably Bulgaria, Romania not. But I think it, the, the chessboard could have looked a lot different if, essentially, if the Americans had paid more attention to the British and, and, and taken their advice. When the Americans began their covert operations, it seemed that there was an air of desperation about them, that they weren't even sure if, if uh, the, the agents they had sent over to uh, Romania, whichever country happened to be the, the target for that month, uh, they weren't sure if those agents were still alive or if they were killed and somebody else was manning the, the communication system. Uh, it, it was almost as though they, they crossed their fingers and hoped for the best and had really no idea whether they, whether the operation had been compromised or not. I think that's absolutely right. And it's, it's absolutely right. And, and the fact is um, most of the operations had been compromised from, from the get go. They were, what the, what the CIA was doing was recruiting uh, uh, emigres, uh, displaced persons out, out of the, the displaced persons camps in, in, in Western Europe, uh, you know, emigres from say Bulgaria, Romania, uh, supposed anti-communists that they were then, you know, airdropping behind, behind, behind the Iron Curtain. But within those training camps from the get-go were, were probably KGB agents. And uh, time and again, as you said, these people just disappeared almost instantly. In a lot of cases, the KGB or the, the local secret police knew exactly when, when and where these guys were, were coming down or, or if they were being land infiltration, where they were coming across. The most amazing uh, example in, in that in, in what we're talking about was the, this uh, Polish uh, anti-communist group um, that had been very active. It had been an army fighting against uh, Soviet control, communist control, in the immediate aftermath of, of, uh, of World War II, a group called Freedom and Liberty, uh, had been apparently wiped out by 1947. But in 1949, all of a sudden, word was coming out to the West that, in fact, it had not been wiped out. It had gone underground. It was still operating. Uh, so the CIA immediately uh, seized on this, this opportunity and for the next three years uh, dropped in commandos, weapons, gold, uh, and word was coming out that, that the, this insurgency was, was uh, growing and, and it was that at one point they could maybe even take over Warsaw. The entire thing, as the Soviets finally revealed in 1952, the entire thing was a hoax. From there, it had been wiped out in 1947. Uh, the whole, the whole operation from 1949 on had, had was just a giant scam. 
And that had a tremendous kind of demoralizing effect on, on operatives within the CIA because that operation had to have involved hundreds, if not thousands of Polish and Soviet uh, officers to, to pull it off. And Americans had no, had no clue at any time that it was a con. Um, so when you have that kind of discipline and when that kind of sophistication that you can pull off a, a, a scam like this for, and get away with it for three years, you start to realize just how outclassed you are <laughs> in this game. <laughs> so. There's also the, the uncomfortable track record for the CIA of using ex-Nazis in their operations. Why was that seen to be necessary or let's say a necessary evil? Right. Um, I think it, it, it's, it's one of those kind of classic slippery slope uh, situations. So, you know, you know in the immediate, uh, the, the plan for after the fall of Nazi Germany, and the Americans uh, were in the forefront of this, was that, that no Nazi party member uh, is going to have any role in, in rebuilding Germany. Kind of similar to the depathification policy that the Americans did in in Iraq after the fall of Saddam Hussein. Well, they quickly realized that there, you know there, there's something like eight million Nazi Party members in Germany, um, and if you want the country to function at all, you have to you have to use those people because they ran everything for the for the previous 12, 13 years. So so very quickly, the idea that you were not going to use any kind of Nazi functionaries went by the wayside. Then when it came to intelligence, um, Americans, again, had no clue, had nobody in Eastern Europe, let alone the Soviet Union. Well, the, 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 the Germans, the ex-Nazis, they had waged a war there. So they had a whole intelligence apparatus in place. So the CIA started using some of, uh, some of those operatives. Um, then it, and as time goes on, and now you're, now you're carrying out paramilitary operations behind the Iron Curtain you start using people with not just Nazi party members or they had been in German military intelligence during the war, but now men who had actually, you know, committed atrocities um, and, and orchestrated them. Um, I think it becomes this kind of gradual process where you don't see where the moral line is to, uh, that, that should not be crossed. And then when you get to the point where you're actually using Eastern European emigres, and Soviet emigres as as the people you're you're infiltrating behind the Iron Curtain. Well, as, as anyone who knows a bit about the Eastern Front in World War II, it was those local right wing groups who were often the executioners for the for the Germans and and uh, uh, you know throughout Ukraine and, and Soviet Union and, and other places. So I think it becomes this kind of gradual process where it's hard to know where you say no that this is a moral line we can't cross. You did talk to Peter Sichel about it, and he here's a German Jew who who had to presumably work with Nazis, and he he seemed to be more or less comfortable with not not comfortable, but he had he had made his peace with that inevitable fact. Uh, Peter Sichel is a, a fascinating man, and, and I, I through him I, I I think I really got a a sense of of the way a spy's mind works. It's and it's it's. Um, dispassionate. You cannot take things personally. It's funny. He, he says some, he, at one point, Peter Sichel said something about Frank Wisner, who was essentially his overall boss. He said, you know, he, he said, Frank Wisner was a great guy, but the problem with Wisner was he took things personally. And in the spy world, you can never take things personally. Um, so I think 
Peter had this ability to, as you said, he was a German Jew. He didn't lose immediate family members, but certainly, you know, his, his the Jewish community in his hometown had been obliterated uh, during the war uh, in the Holocaust. Um, but he had this ability to think, okay, that was then, this is now. And he told me, he said, you know, whenever I would recruit a, a, a German agent, they would always want to have, quote, the conversation with me. And the conversation being, oh, I was one of the good Germans. You know, I, I hid Jews in my basement. I was never a Nazi. And Peter said, I would just shut them off. I said, I, I, I don't want to hear about it. I don't, you know, it's what you did in the war. It's between you and your conscience. From now on, I just want you to work, you know, for me and be good. <laughs> so this, this incredible kind of ability to kind of shut, shut moral considerations off. Or almost compartmentalized. Yes. That way. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the CIA was battling Stalin in Europe, but at home, they were battling the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, right. who seemed to have such a passionate heat on for the agency. Why was that? It's, it's one of the great ironies. And so J. Edgar Hoover was, um, uh, had always harbored ambitions that the FBI was going to become the international intelligence agency that, that, so when the CIA was created in 1947, he had an, an instant hatred. He saw them as competitors, as, as his usurpers. They, they had usurped his, the, the power he, that he thought rightfully uh, belonged to him around the world. Uh, he set out from day one of trying to, de to undermine the CIA uh, um, in any way he could. And, and one way he, the, the most effective way he did was the early CIA was actually a very certainly a socially liberal outfit. Most of the men, uh, early men in the CIA, and it was in 1947, it, it was all men who, as far as people in the field. Uh, a lot of, most of them were out of the Ivy Leagues, uh, socially, culturally, uh, very liberal, sophisticated, anti-communist, um, but, uh, you know, Democrats with a small D. Um, and so, they they had left themselves kind of exposed to 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 be being seen as maybe having leftist sympathies, and Jagger Hoover, uh, and then when with Joe McCarthy came along in 1950, the, the senator from Wisconsin, the the, the anti-communist Red Bader, um, uh, Hoover used McCarthy to to take down his enemies throughout the government, um, but and especially targeted the. The, the CIA. That Red Scare hysteria, I, I never quite, be prior to working on this book, I never realized what a profound effect that had even on our foreign policy. Um, but certainly, all of a sudden, it became, on these, say, on these commando operations behind the Iron Curtain that were such a disaster. Um, when the Red Scare started, it, there was, if, if there had been very little uh, incentive prior to ending these operations and ending the bloodshed, now there was absolutely none because you could only get in trouble if you shut down an, an, an operation. If the operation went forward and it was a disaster, well, at least you were trying. And a, a classic example of this is actually Peter Sichel. He, Peter Sichel, because he was in Berlin, he was overseeing a lot of these, these commando operations, these infiltration operations behind the Iron Curtain. And he saw, you know, after two, three years, that almost all of them were disasters. So he started shutting them down. To the point where he had shut down so many that he then came under suspicion of the FBI of being a communist mole, and he was investigated by the by the FBI as as a potential 
red spy, as, as was Frank Wisner, the head of the, the, the clandestine unit of the CIA. The flip side of that is that it seemed that some operations got the green light simply because it was a sign that they were doing something, anything. That's right. That they, had, they were putting men in the field and they couldn't be accused of somehow appeasing communism or being, uh, being read themselves by not actively taking part in this. That's, that's exactly right. It's, so what you saw by, say, 1950, 1951, you'd had three or four years of these operations. Again, almost all of them uh, disasters. Um, and, but then with the Red Scare heating up, right at a point when you would think they would start shutting down these operations, in fact, they accelerated. And, and the numbers of, of people who were dis- disappearing or you know, spent the rest of their lives in gulags uh, just multiplied. One of the key years in your book uh, is 1956. That, of course, was the year of the Hungarian Revolution. And within uh, days or weeks of that, the, the Suez Crisis. I had always believed that the Hungarian Revolution was crushed because the Americans were distracted by the Suez Crisis. Your take on that, based on your research, is fundamentally different. Explain how that worked, those two events. Right. So... To, to, to just to address Hungary first. So Americans, and, and again, Frank Wisner is the head of the Office of Policy Coordination. He had led this operation for uh, in, in, uh, essentially eight, nine years of trying to foment a anti-communist revolt within the Soviet bloc. Um, when Hungary happened uh, in, in uh, late October of 1956, it was utterly. It was an utterly spontaneous uprising. It went from street demonstrations, peaceful street demonstrations, to full-on insurrection, uh, where where Soviet Red Army soldiers and Hungarian secret police were being hunted down in the streets. It happened in 24 hours. America, the CIA had no idea it was coming. But meanwhile, for for the previous decade, uh, through Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, the CIA. Uh, and, and not just the CIA, the, the American president, Eisenhower, had been urging, um, it, 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 encouraging a, a, a revolt somewhere in, in Eastern Europe and, and you know, alluding to the idea that, of course, we'll come and help you if it happens. Well, it happens. It happens in Hungary. And all of a sudden, the Americans, starting with Eisenhower, go, uh, uh-oh, <laughs> what do we do? Because that rhetoric maybe worked before the Soviets had atomic bombs. It doesn't work now. Where if we if we if we, um, if we encourage a, a, a revolt in, in within the Soviet bloc, we risk running uh, you know things escalating to the to the idea of a nuclear war. We can't play in the Soviets' uh, strategic backyard. So they continue to play lip service, but in fact, the Americans they've already decided Eisenhower is not going to do anything to to uh, to help the Hungarians, um, and then. Five days into the Hungarian Revolution, all of a sudden the British and the French and the Israelis uh, attack the Suez Canal in in, uh, in Egypt. Uh, this becomes a, a this becomes a, a an international crisis, and it's actually it's it's kind of mana from heaven for the Eisenhower administration because now they can distract the world's attention from them doing nothing in Hungary, and now we can get all busy about what's happening. Uh, on, on the Suez Canal. So they take it to the UN, they, they support a, a, a resolution condemning the British and the French and the Israelis for the Suez crisis uh, and refuse to do anything about what's happening in Hungary. Khrushchev, um, who in the initial days of the Hungarian Revolution, uh, this very this 
kind of pivotal moment, October 31st, he has a meeting with the Politburo and he says, um, we have to give up Hungary uh, because in order to crush this revolution, it'll cause such bloodshed, um, you know, we, uh, we won't be able to recover. The following day, he comes, he, he has a change of heart. And he goes, you know, if the Americans were, cared at all about Hungary, um, if they were going to do anything here, they would have done it by now. We're in like day, day seven of the, of the revolt. So he orders the tanks that he ordered out of Hungary the day before. He has them turn around and go back in and crush the revolution. So and the what ifs here are mind boggling. Mind boggling. I think that it, this might have been a complete sea change in the way the Soviet Union dealt with its satellite countries, dealt with the U.S. and the West in general. Absolutely. It's a classic missed opportunity. Uh, yeah. I, 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 if you really look at, because Khrushchev, even prior to the Hungarian Revolution, he had made all these, just the month prior, he'd made all these accommodations in Poland. Uh, he had, he had, he had, uh, within the Soviet Union, he had this, this whole de-Stalinization uh, program of releasing political prisoners. Tens of thousands of political prisoners were released uh, uh, in the first couple of years of Khrushchev's rule. And he had talked just a month before about creating essentially what Gorbachev tried to create with, with the Eastern European kind of satellite nations uh, in 1989, this kind of very loose confederation that would be voluntary, that people could leave when they wanted, Eastern European countries could leave when they wanted to. Um, so really in October 1956, you see a, a bizarre um chance that what happened instead 33 years later in 1989, there's a very good chance it could have happened in 1956 uh, if, if the Americans had, had just been a little more adroit in, in handling the situation. There was one other event that took place in 1956 that happened in North Vietnam that I knew nothing about. And this perhaps could have signaled a change in the American policy in that part of the world. That's right. So, um, uh, in as part of the partition of Vietnam uh, it, it, um, into North and South Vietnam, in, in 1956, there was supposed to be a, a referendum. People were supposed to vote for what sort of government they wanted, leading to the reunification of the country. Um, the Americans had been at the forefront of telling the South Vietnamese, their ally, uh, don't let the vote go forward. We're going to lose to Ho Chi Minh and the communists in the North. So the vote never happened. So the, the country stayed uh, divided. Uh, Ed Lansdale, who was on the scene in South Vietnam at the time and very close to the, to the um, South Vietnamese prime, uh, prime minister, was saying, no, let's have the vote because I think we can win. And, if, and it'll be a unified Vietnam and a democratic, let's say quasi-democratic regime. Um, uh, so he, Lansdale was advocating for the vote to go forward. Well, it did. The, the Americans... Uh, uh, pulled the plug on that. So then in 1956, and again, exactly coincident with the Hungarian uh, Revolution and the Suez Crisis, the last days of October, there was a popular uh, 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 anti-communist peasant revolt in, in a province of, of, northern, of North Vietnam that was the, the, the birthplace of North Vietnamese communism. It was at the home province, actually, of Ho Chi Minh, uh, kind of ground zero of... of uh, of, of anti of, of communism, um, popular revolt against the the, um, the the communist leadership. Of course, it was crushed. Uh, some six thousand people were killed or sent off to the gulags. And again, the Americans sitting in in Saigon, uh, 
had no idea it was coming and no idea what to do when it happened. So again, you're, you're right, Lawrence, it's, it's like, it's one of these what ifs, what, you know, what if the Americans had, uh, as they have always espoused, you know, their, their support of democracy. Well, what if they had supported, uh, you know, a democratic vote in Vietnam, uh, in 1956, what if, what, what would have happened um, if they'd done that? The four men who you, you profiled in this book uh, had fairly long careers with the CIA, not always smooth, not always leaving under happy terms. Um, how did they end up? We know about Peter Sichel, who's still alive at 98. What about the other three? Um, so with, I'll just start with Peter actually, because it's, it's so he, uh, he became CIA station chief in Hong Kong, uh, kind of a plum assignment in the late 1950s. And when he was left Germany, um, he was in, uh, he was in Hong Kong in 1960 when uh, the new number two man of the CIA called together a meeting of all the CIA station chiefs in the area and the region and announced this new initiative, $100 million project that the CIA was, uh, was undergoing to drop anti-communist Chinese uh, guerrillas into mainland China, now controlled by Mao. And during a break in this conference, um, Peter took, took the number two man of the CIA aside in the hallway and said, you know, we would save so much time and money if we just killed them ourselves. <laughs> and he said, and then he said, I'm out, I'm done. I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to do this again. So Peter quit the CIA right then uh, and went in and went into his family's wine business. And you know, the, the one black mark in my book of the, uh, against Peter is that he was actually the man who introduced blue nun wine to, to, uh, to the United States. <laughs> um, I don't know if it's still around, but it was God awful white wine. So, um, um, Frank Wisner, who had, I was actually at, at, in the immediate aftermath of the Hungarian Revolution, as the refugees were streaming across the border, Frank Wisner rushed to Austria. He, he watched the, uh, the refugees coming across. This is something, this revolted something he'd been dreaming of uh, ever since starting the, the OPC. Um, he had a, a, a kind of a catastrophic uh, mental or nervous breakdown and kind of never recovered. Um, he ended up uh, being diagnosed with bipolar uh, uh, syndrome and um, or disorder, and uh, he ended up committing suicide uh, nine years later, uh, shooting himself. The ninth anniversary of the Hungarian Revolution. On, on, on the, on, to the day, uh, to the, the, ninth the ninth anniversary of the day when it looked like the Soviets were going to pull out of Hungary. Um, and certainly I've interviewed his, his sons and one of his sons said, you know, I, I always have thought what killed my father was hungry. I mean, that's where it all started. Um, uh, Ed Lansdale, after the kind of fiasco in Vietnam, he stayed on with the CIA and American government. Um, he was involved in the plots to kill Castro, uh, Operation Mongoose under the Kennedy brothers. Um, and Michael Burke, kind of similar to, to uh, Peter Sitchell, he reached a point where um, he, I think he just got sickened out by, he, he had, uh, Michael Burke had been kind of the hands-on commander of a lot of these, the, the commando operations into, into uh, Eastern Europe. I think he reached a point where he, he, there was just so much tragedy piled up one after the other that he, he quit in 1956. And actually to then go off and, and become the manager of Ringling Brothers Bar and Bailey Circus. <laughs> so. It sounds like a punchline. I want to ask you about the, that key word in the subtitle. We, we refer to it as a tragedy in three acts. Why was it a tragedy? 
So the book goes from 1944 to, to 1956. And I was, you know, I was very, I was very struck by in reading what, FDR had talked about how he what, what he saw this sacrifice of this war was going to lead to. And they, as I mentioned earlier, you know, this was an end of the age of empire. And this was the, the new age was going to be the spread of democracy throughout the developing world. You get 12 years later, and now the Americans, usually through the, the, the front group of the CIA, um, they're actually the paymasters for the British and French empires in many places throughout Asia and Africa. Um, and and we're now overthrowing democratic governments. We're not we're not installing them. We're actually overthrowing them in Iran and Guatemala. So what happened in that twelve year period where America so turned its back on its it, it, you know on its principles and it, and and kind of sacrificed its moral standing in the world? And and I, I, I and it accelerated over that twelve year period. And when you look at with Eisenhower coming in in nineteen fifty two and under his Secretary of State, uh, John Foster Dulles, the Americans tried either succeeded or tried to undermine governments, and not, not just communist-led governments, but middle-of-the-road neutral governments, governments who wanted to maintain neutrality, uh, all around the world, it, 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 um, probably 12 different countries around the world. And it was almost like they strategically chose them to alienate every major region and sub-region of the world. So certainly by 1956, what, what most of the rest of the world saw in America, uh, instead of this kind of beacon of freedom and liberty, which Americans like to, to see ourselves as, uh, they saw it as an empire just like any other that had come before, you know, one that, that stole and cheated and lied uh, just like all the others. So I think in that way, that, that's where the tragedy comes from, is, is this kind of surrendering of America's moral standing in the world. I'm not saying one that seems to be accelerating. <laughs> it's a fabulous book, and it is called The Quiet Americans, Four CIA Spies at the Dawn of the Cold War, A Tragedy in Three Acts. And Scott Anderson, thank you. It is really worthwhile and available, of course, at uh, finer bookstores and online everywhere. Thank you for listening, and Scott, thank you for your time. So much appreciated. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you so much, Lawrence. Appreciated it. That was CBC's Lawrence Wall in conversation with Scott Anderson about his latest bestseller, Quiet Americans, Four CIA Spies at the Dawn of the Cold War, A Tragedy in Three Acts. I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you a copy of these books. The next installment of Writers' Festival Radio appears on Friday. Join us for the ever-present past featuring Maggie O'Farrell and Sarah Zarrar Murphy on November 13th. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Thank you.